Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and I'm so pleased to be bringing you a conversation with Professor Alexandra Natapoff about her new book, Punishment Without Crime. This is going to be our last episode in this academic year season, and I couldn't think of a more appropriate way to round out the season. This book is like the intellectual equivalent of the third season of Serial. And what I mean by that is people who work in the criminal legal system read it and just say, finally, these are things that I've been trying to describe to people or ideas that have been floating around somewhere in my brain and someone finally put it together in an incredibly well-articulated, cohesive, and rigorous analysis. This book paints a picture of what the misdemeanor system is like, and then it steps back and it shows what in many ways is extremely obvious but needs to be examined from a 2,000-foot view what is wrong with the misdemeanor system and why it needs to be changed now. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Natapoff. So what do you mean when we uh, talk about the misdemeanor system? The misdemeanor system uh, is a vast swath of our criminal justice system that we very rarely pay attention to. Uh, it, has, it has not gotten its fair share of, of scrutiny, data collection, uh, or for that matter, blame for, for the, uh, the many critical um, the eyes that are turned on our criminal justice system. Uh, if, you, if we think about it in terms of law, a misdemeanor, of course, is technically an offense for which a person can serve no more than a year incarceration. But the, but the reality, the lived reality of misdemeanors is it is the lower echelons of our criminal system that sweep in millions of people every year for low-level conduct, typically uh, although not always, not particularly harmful or dangerous. These are, um, these are not the, uh, uh, the, the, the serious criminals of, of, of uh, felony law or, or federal prosecutions for the most part. But these, this is low-level conduct in which many, many people can and do engage, punished less harshly than we punish felony offenses, through a vast network of thousands of offices, prosecutors' offices, police departments, public defender offices, and courts around the country, in effect creating a massive, uh, under underscrutinized, relatively opaque world of of conduct and punishment that dominates our criminal system, even though we pay no very little attention to it. Misdemeanors make up 80% of what it is our criminal system does. Um, and so the, when we think about the misdemeanor system, or, or I, I think of it as a, as a leviathan, a sort of a quiet leviathan, um, it's a way of understanding what our criminal system does most of the time to most people based on low-level conduct that no one thinks is particularly harmful. And when you you mentioned that it's a leviathan and that it touches millions of people's lives, I think one of the things that was really sort of helpful and groundbreaking about this book was the work that you did in actually trying to size the systems or system. So how, what is actually the scope of the misdemeanor system? When I, so when I first started writing this book a few years ago, uh, 
I, I had to grapple with the fact that there's very little public data on the size and scope of the misdemeanor system. And so I set about gathering as much as was publicly available at the time. Uh, I sent a records request to every state, uh, every state administrative office of the court, asking them for their misdemeanor docket data. Some states responded, some didn't. Uh, some gave me very little data. Uh, I gathered every uh, every report, every record, um, every bit of information that the National Center for State Courts collects, which is um, far more substantial than it was even a few years ago. And as a result of that research, I conclude that approximately 13 million misdemeanor cases are filed every year in this country. That's about uh, four or five times the size of the felony docket. Approximately three to four million felonies are filed in state courts every year. Um, so, so this is this is the bulk of what the criminal system does, and yet it is only recently that we have started to even gather the kinds of data about misdemeanors that we routinely gather in the world of felonies. And I'm curious how you how you came to this work uh, and how you came to write the book because it seems like. As you said, it's sort of, it's. I, I think one of the things I love about the book is that it like creates a framework and a theory for something that people who have sort of touched the criminal legal system before have seen but haven't been able to kind of see it at that, aren't seeing the forest for the trees or aren't being able to sort of fit what they're seeing into a bigger framework. So how did you, how did you come to this work? And then how were you able to step back? and say, okay, wow, this is actually a system that, that needs its own book. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm going to answer that in two ways. One is, uh, before I became uh, a law professor and, and a scholar, I was a federal public defender in Baltimore, uh, and I had worked as a community advocate in Baltimore neighborhoods for, for a number of years before that. And it was just abundantly clear how important misdemeanors were to people's lives, to the way neighborhoods work, to the criminal system, once you were in those neighborhoods and once you were working in that criminal system. Um, everyone had a misdemeanor story. People expected to get misdemeanors. People were walking around with the burdens of misdemeanor convictions. Uh, and yet it was sort of unacknowledged in the, in the conventional conversations about what was important and what, you know, what was important in the criminal system and indeed what was important in neighborhood advocacy. And so I, I learned early uh, on just, just how impactful the misdemeanor system actually was in understanding how our criminal system actually worked. But the other piece of the puzzle is thinking of it as a system at all. I, th I think that one of the reasons that books like this haven't been written is that the misdemeanor world, Leviathan, behemoth, you know, pick your metaphor, uh, just has not been conceptualized as a whole. And uh, to be clear, that many, many pieces of the misdemeanor system are well scrutinized. So, for example, there's a lot of uh, literature and, and, and scrutiny of the world of stop and frisk or low-level drug arrests. There's a large literature on the overwhelming caseloads carried by misdemeanor public defenders. Uh, there's now a burgeoning literature on, on cash bail in low-level offenses, fines and fees, and the debtor's prison phenomenon. So all these, there are all these pieces of the puzzle out there, but, but when you take a step back, I think it is, it is fruitful and um, uh, revealing to conceptualize all these pieces as part of a larger whole, uh, a system, as I, as, as I said earlier, uh, an enormous system of 
the criminalization of low-level conduct uh, with punishments and collateral consequences and, and human consequences that are admittedly less serious than the felony consequence, but nevertheless devastating for individuals and for their lives and for their families. And the whole world has just not been conceptualized as a system on its own terms and in its own right. So you've touched a couple times on the harms um, of a misdemeanor conviction beyond the sort of lighter punishment that people might get in the misdemeanor system. So can you articulate what some of the, what some of the harm would be of being touched by the system? Sure, and it's such an important question because I think that the the fact that misdemeanors are by almost by definition punished more lightly than felonies explains in some part why they haven't received their fair share of attention uh, because mass incarceration has occupied the public consciousness now for so many decades. We've come to see ourselves as that country, that nation that, that punishes more harshly and punishes more people more harshly through incarceration than any other nation on the planet. And that fact, that, that social fact, that public policy fact has kind of overshadowed the rest of what it is our criminal system does. So the average felony sentence in this country is approximately four years. And and it is objectively more serious than the kinds of punishments and the kinds of sentences that we see in the world of misdemeanors. And and so we forget uh, or, or have become numb to, is probably a better way of, of, of thinking about it, we've become numbed to the special harshnesses and dehumanization of the misdemeanor experience. And so, so for the, in the world of misdemeanors, uh, you know, Malcolm Feely's famous book, The Process is the Punishment, which he wrote in 1979, uh, is, is even more true today. The process of punishment begins at that first stop and frisk, that first arrest, that first encounter with the police, that first criminal mark. Um, and, it, and it extends all the way through the incarceration experience that so many people undergo because they can't afford bail, because they can't afford um, uh, to um, uh, to get out of jail while their cases are being resolved. Uh, many people, as we now know, plead guilty because they can't afford bail, so they take that low-level offense, uh, that that take-it-or-leave-it plea deal, off, so often offered by prosecutors. You know, if you take probation and a fine today, you can go home. And many people take that deal in order to keep their jobs or, or to get home to their their uh, their children. Um, not fully realizing that that criminal conviction will dog them for a lifetime in many of the same ways that a felony conviction will. We now know how burdensome any criminal conviction, even a misdemeanor criminal conviction, can be in the world of employment, credit, housing, education. Those criminal convictions um, are being checked by employers and landlords um, and, and and credit institutions. Uh, that many... Um, Many misdemeanors will disqualify individuals from licenses, from federal aid, from uh, any misdemeanor probation violation. So if you fail to pay those fines and fees and violate your misdemeanor probation, you can be disqualified for all federal welfare benefits, Social Security, food stamps. Uh, there's just a vast array of consequences, and, and I avoid using the term collateral consequences uh, intentionally, 
because there's nothing collateral about them. In many ways, that that panoply of experiences of burdens of criminal marks and punishments and long-term consequences is so far outweighs anything in the court order, anything that any judge is going to impose, typically probation and a fine. So they really aren't collateral. The the term collateral is really a, a holdover from the felony world in which you know, ruining your credit is a collateral consequence to that 10-year drug sentence. But in the misdemeanor world, uh, the, the, every inch of the process has become onerous punishment in, in really profound ways. So you actually mentioned, I, I, I realize we should probably define at the outset, because I don't think this is something I learned until like my second year of law school, what a misdemeanor versus, what is a misdemeanor? What is it relative to versus a felony? Um, and then what are the kinds of offenses then that are generating involvement with the system? So again, technically a misdemeanor has historically referred to, well, let's back up. The modern definition of misdemeanor is any offense for which a person can serve no more than one year in incarceration. So that definition, of, of course, is not a stable one. Some jurisdictions have two, three, four-year misdemeanors. And then many jurisdictions have other petty offenses uh, that have a wide range of lesser punishments, six months, three months. There are many, of course, non-jailable misdemeanors, meaning there's still a criminal conviction. Uh, it just means you can't go to jail for it up front, so the, so the punishment is typically a fine. This is, this is an extraordinarily important category of offense when we think about decriminalization, because in many jurisdictions, that's exactly what decriminalization means. It means taking incarceration off the table for a criminal misdemeanor, but people are still accruing those enormous fines and fees. And if they don't pay those fines and fees, of course, in many places they are then subject to, ironically, incarceration, not for the underlying offense, which for which they could not be in prison, but for the, for the failure to pay their um, legal financial obligations. Um, we call misdemeanors different things. Sometimes we call them violations. Sometimes we call them ordinance violations. Sometimes we call them uh, petty offenses. So it really is an, an enormous world of offenses, uh, not, uh, uh, which then in part explains why the institutions that handle them and the consequences that attend them are so diverse in their own right. The world of low-level um, offenses, and I should just mention that in the book, when I say misdemeanor, I mean this entire world, whether it's called a petty offense or a violation, as long as it is, as it is defined as criminal and not civil, there's a whole world of civil violation, uh, designated civil for which a person can only um, be penalized with a fine. Many of them work exactly like misdemeanors, especially when people are being incarcerated for failure to pay those putatively civil fines and fees. But I do not count them in that total, that, that, 15, uh, that 13 million uh, filings total, uh, because we have to make decisions about, uh, about where to draw the line. But there are many millions of additional offenses that are handled as civil, but nevertheless down the line can have uh, uh, consequences that look almost exactly like a criminal misdemeanor. Uh, but within the traditional criminal world of offense, misdemeanors themselves are wildly diverse. So they can range from what we might think of as 
authentically serious offenses, domestic violence, driving while incarcerated. Some jurisdictions uh, treat some forms of, um, of, of serious theft, as, for example, as misdemeanors. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, uh, misdemeanors can include uh, uh, my, um, tr- bearing on trivial conduct, jaywalking, uh, spitting, littering, loitering, trespassing, um, a whole range of what we often refer to as order maintenance offenses, uh, public order offenses, again, disorderly conduct, loitering, trespassing, resisting arrest, obstruction, uh, which are profoundly important policing tools. Uh, And then maybe at the very, very end of that spectrum, 25 states make speeding a criminal misdemeanor uh, because they're, because traffic codes have been criminalized. So, so the world range, the world of misdemeanor offenses ranges from the, the truly innocuous uh, offenses that many people can't believe any jurisdiction actually treats as a crime all the way up to more serious offenses. Like I said, DUI, domestic violence, which we might think of as kind of mini felonies. They look like the kinds of culpable, uh, conduct with victims or or the kinds of harms that we might think of as triggering the kind of attention from the criminal system that conduct like that actually deserves. So um, you describe the system in the book, I think, as enormous, sloppy, and fast. Can you just paint a picture? Um, and I, I know it, it's going to vary immensely across jurisdictions, et cetera, but can you paint a broad picture of how the system works and what it looks like. So the misdemeanor system, as I've just described, is enormous for a number of reasons, in part because of all the different kinds of conducts that we permit the state to criminalize. We, uh, U.S. constitutional law places almost no limitation on the kinds of conduct that um, that, that, that a state, and I say state advisedly because, of course, municipalities have their own local ordinance codes, which also criminalize conduct. But So criminalization is taking place in a redundant way at many levels of local, state, and county government. Um, but the system is enormous because we permit the criminalization of an enormous amount of conduct, in part as a result of its enormity, but also as a result of the fact that it's that these are low-status crimes, these are low-status courts to which we haven't paid very much attention. The process is famously sloppy. Uh, this is where we get nicknames like assembly line justice coined by the United States Supreme Court in 1972 in its landmark case, Argersinger versus Hamlin, which conferred the right to counsel on um, uh, misdemeanors for which people uh, for which people are incarcerated, uh, but what we see here at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak, is a real devolution of the rule of law, a real um, uh, sort of dismissal and and derogation of just the very basic rules of the criminal justice system. We see, for example, widespread violations of the right to counsel. There have been now numerous reports over the years documenting in painstaking detail how all around the country individuals uh, facing misdemeanor charges who have the right to counsel um, under clearly established Supreme Court precedent are just not getting lawyers. The judges don't appoint them. They're being um, forced or pressured into waiving counsel when um, when they have not been properly advised of their rights. Um, It is is also the case that some misdemeanors, misdemeanors who are not facing 
um, uh, incarceration at all do not have the right to counsel and therefore are navigating the process uh, by themselves uh, with no legal knowledge, with no knowledge of the law, even though they are pleading guilty and the vast majority of people do um, uh, do plead guilty. Uh, the trial rates in this world are minuscule, you know, a couple of percentage points, um, which means that there's often not a, le- a lot of legal expertise going on in these cases. So we see the right to counsel being violated. We see uh, the Equal Protection Clause being violated. Many people are being incarcerated in violation of the Equal Protection Clause and Bearden versus Georgia for failing to pay fines and fees without the kinds of process that the Constitution provides to protect them. Um, and then we just see run-of-the-mill ignorance and I- ignoring of the law. Uh, judges telling lawyers that there's no time to file a motion, that there's no time on the docket for a trial, actually holding public defenders in contempt who ask for more time for their clients or who want to take time to provide individuated justice. So there's just a lot of um, there's just a lot of lawlessness, if you will, here at the bottom of the pyramid. So that's what I mean when I say it's sloppy. And then finally, it's fast. Uh, Every official player in the misdemeanor system, uh, from public defenders most famously, but also prosecutors who are handling those enormous dockets, and courts themselves who are under pressure to clear those large misdemeanor dockets, and we can talk a little bit about the nature of those pressures, particularly the financial nature of those pressures in a little bit. Um, But all those official players are under enormous pressure to clear those dockets quickly, and so uh, 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 the f- former Justice uh, Gerald Kogan of this Florida Supreme Court complained that the misdemeanor courts in his own uh, in his own state had become, as he put it, mindless conviction mills. That people were just being railroaded through the Florida low-level courts, uh, pressured into pleading guilty in, in fast and sloppy ways. So. <clears throat> I'm I'm sort of formulating this as a, as we go. So sorry if this is not a well articulated question, but I think there's an interesting connection between um, the size of the system and the sort of pettiness, uh, the the nature of the offenses. It's not like a murder investigation, right? That it's things that we all do all the time, um, and then you juxtapose that with this pr- uh, problematic lack of concern for accuracy. And I'm wondering if you see a relation between those two dynamics. And if so, what does it tell you about the the system or its purposes or philosophy? The size, the sloppiness, uh, the lack of lawfulness, the disrespect uh, that we see pervasively throughout the misdemeanor system uh, if, if we wanted a big bang theory of the misdemeanor system, you know, just take the biggest step back, sort of, um, you know, from the from the greatest distance. The way I have come to understand the misdemeanor system's many dysfunctions and kind of deviations from how we think a criminal system really ought to behave is that we have essentially turned over the lowest echelons of criminal processing. To, to a very different set uh, of um, tasks of social control, of economic, mm-hmm. uh, of economic intentions, of um, gentrification, of 
social policies that we permit to be laundered through the criminal system in ways that that don't that don't work at the upper echelons of the criminal system. So, you, so you said in your question to me for a moment a moment ago, you know, this isn't like this isn't like a murder case. It's not it's not how serious cases work. And I would say that in those serious cases, for all the dysfunctions of of mass incarceration, of all for all its harshness, all its racial skew, um, for everything we know about wrongful convictions in the world of mass incarceration, uh, there is a there is a widely accepted understanding both of the purposes of of prosecuting and enforcing serious offenses and the need to do so that there's a there's a profound social value to have a functioning criminal justice system that actually goes after bad guys that and in our system in many ways aspires because on the ground we don't actually it, it doesn't always work this way but at least aspires to engage in the classic purposes of criminal law deterrence, rehabilitation, retribution, when all else fails, incapacitation, that we, we understand that we need the state to both have the power and authority, and then also, of course, the obligation to, to step in and maintain public safety and maintain public order in that way. And that need for the state to do that flows in part from the seriousness of that conduct, all by itself, that imposes a constraint on the state. Many of our classic uh, theories of criminal justice, our classic constraints on state criminal authority flow from our understanding that that is the purpose of criminal justice in some profound way. And when, in the misdemeanor system, we don't have that. We don't have the constraint of the conduct because everybody loiters. Yes. Everybody jaywalks. Everybody Maybe I don't spit, but many people spit. Uh, the, the conduct does not tell us anything about its its culpability, its danger, its harmfulness. There's an entirely different calculus occurring about whether we should authorize the state to have the power to intervene in people's lives and liberty and take their liberty and their property through the powers of punishment in this way. And so because the theory of why we do it is different, we are giving the state social control, the, the ability to take people's liberty, and in particular their money and their property, for, for reasons that are so far afield from the usual reasons that we permit the state to do that in the world of criminal law, that it's unmoored. That's one of the reasons why the misdemeanor system is so big. We permit it to do all kinds of work that are unmoored from the basic reasons that we have a criminal system in the first place. And without those principled constraints, without those um, governance constraints, the state can use it for everything. So in our, in, in, for anything that it chooses. Um, and so I think that that is part is one way to understand the explosion of, of uh, the fines and fees and the revenue generating motivations for so much of low level uh, criminal justice enforcement these days. We permit the state to use the misdemeanor system as a revenue generating mechanism. Yeah. So let's actually. If you let's, permit the state to do it. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Go and ahead. I want to come back to the the other sort of 
functions that the misdemeanor system is, because um, you've yeah. touched on a couple of them. But I definitely want to make sure we get to the criminal system as a, as basically an arm of, of revenue-generating tax collection. So um, can you talk a little bit about money and how money plays into the system? Yeah, so, so um, the, the, the three, you know, core chapters of the book are entitled Innocence, Money, and Race. Uh, and it's because I think that those are the three keys to understanding both the nature of the misdemeanor system that we have, but also its profound social and economic and racial implications. Um, and, the, and the reason that the chapter is entitled Money is because I don't think that we can understand the misdemeanor system without scrutinizing the profoundly influential role that money and wealth have on shaping its purposes and um, and, and its functions and the way that it works. So I, I think that people have, are becoming more and more attuned to the fact that jurisdictions, most famously Ferguson, Missouri, but of course now, as we know, many jurisdictions around the country use the low-level criminal process as a revenue generator to um, to generate fines and fees, which in turn fund the criminal system itself. It funds the courts, it funds public defender offices, prosecutor offices, uh, sheriff's departments, probation offices. It often funds the local municipality. Many cities uh, live in part off the fines and fees generated by those low-level court systems. Um, and of course, it, that it, uh, all by itself, that dysfunctional incentive to convert the criminal system into a revenue uh, generator has has created, um, you know, profound distortions in the way those low-level courts work and low-level law enforcement works. And, and, and I think that that has really become part of the public debate about uh, the nature of our criminal system. It's one of the places the misdemeanor system is finally getting the kind of uh, scrutiny and attention that it deserves. But the criminalization of poverty goes beyond uh, the fines and fees phenomenon that is definitely, you know, a, a profound, a profoundly important piece of it. But a lot of the misdemeanor system only goes after poor people because many offenses are themselves crimes of poverty. Uh, so, so homelessness is perhaps the most famous example um, uh, only, uh, you know, only the homeless are, are going to jail because they sit, sleep or lie on the sidewalk or perform personal or, um, you know, private functions in public. Uh, maybe one of the most important crimes of poverty that is only just beginning to get the kind of attention that it requires is the offense of driving on a suspended license which is a massive a proportion of the misdemeanor docket, mm -hmm. uh, as I, you know, I, I, I shared as much data as I could find in the book. Um, it's a crime of poverty because most people get their licenses suspended because they cannot pay a traffic ticket. And once their license is suspended and they have to drive for work or just take care of their children or other life necessities, they get a driving on suspended license offense, which then plunges them further into debt, um, and then, of course, with their license, it affects their employment. It can affect uh, many uh, other aspects of their economic life. So, so that whole swath of the misdemeanor system essentially um, singles out the poor for criminalization based on their inability to pay. And then the other piece of that puzzle, of course, is that many—it's um, not just that some crimes are crimes of poverty, but 
but but poor people and and um, and working people are more likely to encounter the misdemeanor system in the first place, depending on where they live. When we over-police low-income communities and communities of color, it means that individuals in those communities are more likely to encounter that low-level criminal process. And so they also uh, are more likely to sustain those, those, um, those marks, those criminal records, those experiences than the wealthy. So let's maybe then um, also just go into those other sort of core chapters that you were talking about. So we talked a little bit about the idea of accuracy. <clears throat> what, is that, what does that look like and, and how does the system treat uh, innocence? Yeah. So, so it's one of those things that becomes obvious once you think about the misdemeanor system um, in the way that it functions. So once you recognize that the misdemeanor system is enormous, sloppy, and fast, that people are pleading guilty uh, because they can't um, uh, because they can't afford bail, or because the process itself is so long and drawn out and onerous and expensive that they that it is prohibitively expensive in terms of time and effort and and exposure to litigate their own. Uh, to litigate their own innocence, then it stands to reason that many people are pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And this is, um, so, so, you know, the innocence movement has been an extraordinarily important uh, uh, force in American, not just American criminal reform, but understanding our criminal system. I think we now all understand that we often get it wrong in the most serious cases. And the, and the innocence movement has not, has yet to grapple with misdemeanors. Uh, I think that is just beginning, but the mis- but the wrongful conviction docket uh, phenomenon and misdemeanors is, is, is clearly in the thousands, maybe even in the tens or hundreds of thousands because the system is so large and so sloppy uh, I could talk about it for a long time. It's, it's a profoundly disturbing phenomenon, but I want to zero in on one aspect of the wrong of the wrongful misdemeanor conviction phenomenon that I think um, really deserves our, our, you know our, our our attention and consideration, which is that it is very likely given given the nature of misdemeanor policing and misdemeanor processing, it is highly likely that the individuals most likely to sustain a wrongful misdemeanor conviction are probably African-American men. And the reason that's the case is that we over-police African-American men for precisely the kinds of offenses that are most likely to lead to wrongful conviction. Low-level order maintenance offenses like loitering and trespassing, disorderly conduct, offenses for which there will often be no extrinsic evidence, meaning no evidence uh, separate and apart from the allegation of the arresting police officer, whether the offense even occurred, these individuals, uh, so they're more likely to be charged with these kinds of offenses. They're also highly likely not to be able to afford bail. They're also um, likely to have other previous encounters with the criminal system that makes it unlikely that they would pre- uh, prevail at trial. And so they're most likely to plead guilty to offenses like these, which in turn it is highly likely that they didn't commit because after the revel- after the Supreme Court vagueness revolution sort of epitomized by Papa Christu and other vagueness cases decided in the 1970s, those statutes, the loitering statutes, trespassing statutes, in order to survive constitutional scrutiny, t- 
can't be that vague. They have to be pretty specific. So, for example, in Baltimore, the loitering statute prohibits um, uh, impeding the free flow of of, uh, vehicular or pedestrian traffic after having been warned to desist and having failed to desist, which is just another way of saying it's kind of hard to loiter in Baltimore. It takes a lot of effort to violate all those provisions of the statute. And Maryland courts have recognized, Maryland appellate courts have recognized that most people arrested for loitering will often not have done those things. They're, they're, they, they will not have met all the qualifications and the triggers of the statute, which is just a long-winded way of saying that they're innocent. When individuals like that plead guilty, those are wrongful convictions. And given the scope of order maintenance policing for this particular population, it stands to reason that many, many of them uh, are being wrongfully convicted in these ways. Um, and I imagine, I mean, you talked a little bit about race, but how, let's talk about race in the system and how the misdemeanor system is disproportionately affecting, um, people of color and, or is that part of the system's design or purpose or function or how does race play into the system? So. I think we understand that mass incarceration is one of the engines of racial inequality in this country. That is one of the ways that we create and maintain racial inequality, the experiences of being a person of color in this country um, with a long and shameful history. But, but the racialization of American crime starts long before anyone goes to prison. It starts with the misdemeanor system. That is the beginning of the net. It is the first time that our criminal system essentially affirmatively reaches out to sweep in people of color for these low-level offenses, for order maintenance offenses, for the loitering and the trespassing and the petty offenses, disproportionately based on race, based on neighborhood, based on class and poverty, uh, in ways that the entire system and it's filling up that pipeline from the very beginning, from those first policing choices in ways that affect every decision, every institution, every office downstream. And the misdemeanor system has not, in my view, gotten its fair share of blame um, for its profound impact on the the role that race and race disproportion and, and um, racial bias plays in shaping uh, in, in shaping the entire system. It's, I, I think it also needs to be recognized on an, on an even, on, on, a, on, a, on an ideological level, that in many ways it's the misdemeanor system that is the first step in the creation of the, of the stereotype of black criminality. It's that first stop, that first arrest based on race and neighborhood and appearance and use that that first marks African-American men as criminal. And then the system iteratively, iteratively repeats that, that treatment, that stigma, that marking over and over again, giving people those arrest records, giving them those criminal convictions for this low-level conduct, uh, for these minor behaviors in which so many people, in which everyone engage. And now... Those 
individuals are become high-risk individuals, not because of their individual criminality, but because the system has selected them through the misdemeanor system and marked them and treated them as criminals in this way. And it, and it's the, if we understand how the misdemeanor system works, we can see how it knits together the stereotypes step by step and decision by decision uh, to create what we now understand to be the, um, the mark of criminality that we inflict on so many African-American men. So I guess that brings me back to something we touched on earlier, um, which is the idea of the misdemeanor system as something more than a criminal system, but as a as a social institution. Can you talk about the ways that the misdemeanor system is functioning it, it beyond um, beyond its criminal purpose and how it is sort of shaping society or reflecting it? It is a um, a homelessness management mechanism. It is it it is it's a reflection of the fact that we have permitted the low level criminal system, that bottom of the pyramid, to do so much work, so much social work, racial work, economic work, um, local organizational work, that it is best understood alongside our other seminal uh, uh, social institutions like education or taxation um, or the welfare system itself. These are not just uh, bureaucracies and institutions and public policies. They are fundamental to understanding the way we structure our democracy, how we understand equality and inequality and the distribution of wealth and resources in our country. And I think Misdemeanor, the misdemeanor system belongs in that pantheon, in that conversation about the way we structure our democracy and our economy. So given that it's um, doing all of those things, how is it functioning as a justice system? So misdemeanors, I think, ask us to reimagine what we mean by criminal justice. Do we really think we should use the criminal system to manage homelessness? Do we really think we should permit the criminal system to make all these racial decisions for so many individuals and families and communities? Do we think that jurisdictions should be permitted to use criminalization as a way of filling their coffers and generating revenue? I think when we really delve into the misdemeanor system, we have to ask, um, Shouldn't it have to choose <laughs> if it really wants to be a criminal system? In other words, if the rationale for having a misdemeanor system is public safety, if it's going after harms, like, for example, drunk driving or domestic violence or, um, you know, or, ser or, or serious theft, if that's what it's for, then it should behave more like a criminal system. It should have to obey the rules, for example, in the Bill of Rights. It should have to give people due process. It should have to care about evidence. It should have to care whether people are innocent or guilty before they convict them in ways that it doesn't currently because it's moving too fast and in too sloppy a way uh, to, you know, to, really, um, to really give much thought to the question at all. Alternatively, if it isn't really a criminal system, if that's not really what it's for and what it's doing, then 
And maybe you shouldn't have all that extraordinary state authority that we confer on criminal justice institutions. We give prosecutors vast unfettered discretion that we don't give to other public officials precisely because we think the project of fighting crime and public safety is so important and that discretion is so important. If really what's happening is that prosecutors are adjuncts to city councils trying to raise money, then maybe they shouldn't have that kind of unfettered discretion. Maybe those courts shouldn't be able to incarcerate individuals and confer that criminal stigma on them. So I I think the question of is it just or is it a justice system forces us to ask, what do we mean by criminal justice? And And does this system actually adhere to the kinds of purposes and processes and commitments that we associate with criminal justice. And if not, you know, maybe it shouldn't get the keys to the car. One of the sort of asides that you mentioned near the end of the book, I don't remember where, was that, you know, the RMV also has incredible, um, it has very specific authority and influences important parts of our lives, but we don't give it all the powers that we give the criminal system, but in some ways they're regulating some of the same stuff. And I thought that was such an interesting analogy. Um, and I never really thought about the, uh, you know, the possibility that, Oh, wow, this could just, this could be something different than a justice system. Uh, You know, I think it's really fruitful to compare the misdemeanor system to other administrative systems of, of regulation and social control and intervention. Uh, we, there, there are enormously interventionist uh, bureaucracies and uh, government officials who have all kinds of power in the, in the world of welfare, healthcare, driving, you mentioned the DMV, um, but they can't pluck you off the street and lock you up because they're not criminal. We don't, you know, no matter how how um, uh, how much the the officials at the, you know, Department of Motor Vehicles don't like you, uh, we don't give them that power. And I think it's time to rethink what authority this misdemeanor system that has accrued such enormous authority and power over the centuries. It's you know it's been around for so long. Um, to bring it into conformity with our modern principles and understandings of the administrative state, of the nature of official bureaucracies, of the kinds of incentives that we now we have come to understand much better the incentives of government officials and and um, other uh, other individuals with this kind of authority, and, and we haven't because it's been so obscure because the misdemeanor system has been uh, flown under the radar and because it's so opaque and so hard to get information about we have not brought it into the modern rigorous scholarly policy conversation about how we permit our government to exercise its various forms of authority it's not an on-off switch we have many uh, many governance tools at our disposal so i hope that these new conversations about misdemeanors about fines and fees about debtors prison um, about order maintenance policing about innocence, about wrongful convictions and race will uh, force the misdemeanor system into the light uh, so that it will finally get the kind of full-throated treatment that it deserves. Great. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. All right. Thank you, Skylar, very much. All right.
right. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for making this such a great season. I want to thank the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, and of course, the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke, for helping to produce both this episode and the entire season. And we'll see you in the fall.